Welcome to Ethical Data Explained. Join us as we discuss data-related obstacles and opportunities with entrepreneurs, cybersecurity specialists, lawmakers, and even hackers to get a better understanding of how to handle data ethically and legally. Here to keep you informed in this data-saturated world is your host, Henry NG. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ethical Data Explained with Soaks. I'm your host today, Henry NG, the VP of Sales and Partnerships. And I am joined today with uh, an individual who is from Appify. Uh, He started his career in the legal field, moved into software development, and now sits as the COO at Appify. Uh, His name is Andre Urban, and uh, we want to welcome him today. Hi there, Andre. How are you today? Oh, I'm great, Henry. Thanks for having me. This is super exciting. I've never been on a podcast before, so (laughs) I'm really enjoying it already. Good. I'm really glad. I'm really glad. We're really happy to have you here today. And I think the the first thing we want to start with is is really to know a little bit more about you, your career and your experience. So I'll pass over to you and uh, you can give us a little bit of history on Andre, basically. All right. Yeah. Well, I started as a lawyer a long time ago, you know, but I always found the job a bit more uh, complicated than I expected. Uh, It's a lot of conflict. It's a lot of Uh, unpleasant situations and you don't really see yourself as a person uh, going forward towards a solution more of a person that's trying to break other people's solutions for uh insignificant problems i would say (laughs) and (laughs) while i have huge respect for all the all my friends you know that i had had from law school and that they still do the job and in the end it is pretty satisfying you know to win a court case or to be able to advise on huge billion dollar deals and so on so it's not like it's a bad job i just didn't like it you know for me personally it it was it wasn't a fit and i was i wasn't very happy about it i was like what am i gonna do Uh, i wasn't sure about that i didn't know anything else to be honest you know so i was like okay so maybe i could be a project manager you know you don't need a specific education for this like if you're smart and you study a bit you'll figure it out you know so I applied to different project managing jobs in various startups and tech companies because I always liked computers and technology and stuff like that. And I always got to like the second stage, third stage of the interviews. And then they would tell me like, you know, dude, you're great. You're great, but you just don't have the skills, you know? <laughs> you're it's a not, liar. not great to hear all the time, but I mean, yeah. I'm guessing it drove you to to kind of aim for something else and aim a bit higher as well. Exactly. I figure this out after a few interviews that I actually don't have the skills, right? And I applied to college, was like full-time working and then part-time studying to become a project manager, like a tech project manager or IT project manager. But because of that, I had to learn the basics of programming, right? And I never programmed before, or maybe like once or twice in my life, you know, in school or something, I never really paid much attention to it. But because of that, I had to learn it. And it took only like maybe two weeks for me to absolutely fall in love with it. And it was crazy. Like I was literally like working full time and then studying full time, learning programming, you know, from Udemy and all kinds of, you know, online courses, Coursera. I was like living on YouTube and those places and just trying to figure it out and uh, piece the knowledge of software engineers together online. And it's actually nowadays you have amazing resources for this. So I guess anybody who has the dedication and I had the dedication, not because I really wanted to become a software engineer more. I really didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I had the drive to do something else. Yeah, exactly. And it worked out for me real well because uh, after 
maybe a year of studying. I was able to land a job. It was a pretty good job. We learned a lot. We were working in a really small team on a server, like a backend framework for a big company that does business with banks and energy companies and really like big things. So I had got the opportunity to tap into their knowledge about really complex systems. And I was working with this super kind and amazing software architect that basically taught me everything about software development and backend development. After a year, this project ended because we kind of built it and that was it. And they were like, okay, so you can be here. You can kind of, you know, maintain it and work with the system. And I was like, "Mm, it's probably not challenging enough for me. So I started looking elsewhere. And after a while, I was supposed to start working for Kiwi. I don't know if you know Kiwi.com. Yeah, Yeah, this company. But last minute, uh, the deal was off. Doesn't matter the reasons, but they were legit. So I was like, okay, but I'm already one leg out of the door, right? Uh, I don't want to stay where I was. So let's search for something else. I opened a jobs portal and the first company there was Appify. I was like, hmm, what is this? Oh, web scraping. That's cool. I thought this is illegal. I want to apply. <laughs> yeah, it's something different, <laughs> isn't it? It's, I feel like back, especially back in 2018, it was the, the start of the big movement to web scraping and data collection. So it did seem a little bit illegal probably back then. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It really piqued my interest, you know, and uh, I just, I love Appify, you know. Um, I'm super glad that guys hired me. I was surprised in a way because uh, the team at that point was really small, so they were looking at senior developers, but I guess that uh, my legal background convinced them that I should join. And it's been a ride ever since, you know. I started as a developer, then I got the responsibility to take care of our SDK, which now you may know is Crawly. Uh, It's 7,000 stars web scraping library for JavaScript. And as I was going, you know, I got my own team. Then I was leading teams of teams and so on. And now I'm the COO and it's been a crazy ride in a way, you know. And I wouldn't trade Appify for anything. It's the best company I ever worked for, really. That's great to hear. I mean, it sounds like even though you didn't go into project management, now that you're COO, you're kind of the manager of all the project managers going on in a company now. So I feel like it's gone full circle for you. Yeah, in a way it did, in a way it did, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's an amazing journey, especially going from, like you said, taking apart and, and kind of dissecting these problems to really kind of managing and, and kind of solving them now, especially in those COO roles and through your web development roles. And obviously we did some... Uh, background kind of conversations with you just to find out a little bit more about yourselves and one of the main things that really stuck to us in in our kind of pre-podcast interview was the idea that you kind of came across and said that you enjoy finding weak spots and and bottlenecks in systems and unlocking their full potential so what kind of draws you in about kind of those bottlenecks and and kind of tell me about those encounters that you might have uh, on a on a regular basis that you see yeah i'd say with every system, there's something wrong, right? You just maybe don't know about it. But maybe I'll start from a different note or di- different different end of the problem. And you know, when you look at software engineers or when you talk to software engineers, uh, most of them are builders. You know, they want to build things. They they love when they can ship stuff to production when something they create is used by other people and so on. And I'm kind of weird or special in a way that. I don't like this that much. You know, for me, building stuff is not that important. I don't know why, but I always like debugging more, like, you know, find, finding issues, finding problems, and then solving them. 
maybe it's because I kind of like puzzles. I don't know, maybe because you find that building gets a bit repetitive uh, because after you know how to build it and then you have to build it again. Like, for example, when you're working for a company that builds mobile apps and you just do one mobile app after another, then might get a bit repetitive. Uh, the truth is, I don't know, because I've never done that. <laughs> but it's how I feel about it. At least how I try to imagine that I trend towards debugging more the building or why or what the motivations of mine could be. But in reality, I don't know. I just know that, you know, it works for me. I love it. I love when there's a problem and you can really dive deep into the problem and look at it from all different angles, figure out what's going on there and then slowly hack away on it. And suddenly then you solve it and you have this adrenaline or dopamine rush of like, yes, you know, finally, finally. Yeah. I guess maybe with building, it's a bit more incremental, you know, just step-by-step -step thing. Whereas with fixing bugs, it's like you get all the dopamine at the end. <laughs> of course, of course. And what are kind of some of the weak spots that you normally find in systems? And where do these bugs normally come from when we're talking about systems like Appify? Yeah, I would say this really changed as my career progressed. You know? So when I was the sole developer building Appify SDK or Crawly now, it was mostly issues that I created myself. So I would build and build and build. And then suddenly I would spend two weeks trying to figure out what I built, built wrong. And so there's that one kind of like engineering bottlenecks. I, I really love to dive deep into those and, you know, work with debugger and trying to trace everything and inspect everything and uh, see what's actually going on in the system. So that's one thing. But... Over time, obviously, those bottlenecks or weak spots have changed. You know, once I moved into management of managers, that means like I had teams which actually had their own managers and I was managing them. Suddenly, it's more about communication and uh, making sure that the teams work well together, that they have everything they need, that the people are happy and that they feel they're making a dent in the company's strategy or that they progress and that they have a, they feel they have a good future in front of them. So, and now as a COO, again, it's a bit different because now I don't have many direct reports. Uh, I'm not a manager of people. I'm more manager of situations or projects or problems. And I have other people that do the work and they're excellent. You know, they are very good at their jobs, but sometimes it's hard for marketing to grasp the full engine, full scope of the engineering problem or for engineers to grasp how important it is to communicate this feature to customers and communicate it in a way that uh, the customers will understand because they are not living eight hours a day in this code base. And obviously they need a bit more of a nudge. And so nowadays, the biggest bottleneck I saw, the biggest bottlenecks I saw are really communications issues within teams, multi-team projects that need some high level owner who kind of makes the hard decisions at the end, or who just clears the path for projects to happen, you know, because it could be very difficult for some things that require uh, teamwork of three to five teams to actually happen because obviously all of them are busy, right? Yeah. And if one team finishes their work and the other team is busy and they put it at the end of their backlog three months later, 
then the next team puts it at the end of their backlog three months later. So I'm kind of running around and be like, okay, hey guys, could you please push this? <laughs> it kind of sounds like uh, you're the glue to Appify where you're removing those blockers and getting teams to communicate. And that's, that's obviously an enjoyable thing, especially when you're so focused previously on, on fixing those bugs and fixing those issues from a program level. And now you're doing it at a company level. One of the, the main questions I wanted to ask you is, is what attracted you to Appify in the first place beyond just it was the first job that came up on the job portal and it was web scraping. Was there <laughs> anything else about the company that really drew you to it? Yeah, I think, you know, the fact that I found them as the first company, that was just pure luck. But in a way, I think even if they were fifth or sixth, I would have ended up here because it's just, you know, the founders, they had really great vibe when we were interviewing. And I kind of like working with people who think in a similar way as I do. So it's just like, you know, let's not stress too much about details. Let's just focus on shipping, focus on doing our best jobs. And we were working, when, when I started, we were working out of one room in like a co-working center you know, we could not have a coffee machine because it was too noisy. So we were making filtered coffee because, you know, the, the kettle is not that noisy. And uh, it was just it was just great. And I think we kind of kept this culture or atmosphere in the company ever since. Like on Friday, we had a seventh birthday party. I've actually been in Appify only for four years or four and a half years, but this was the seventh birthday party. And it was just great to, you know, see all the people who maybe are no longer with the company, but they would show up anyway and have a good time and see like, hey, you know, I just, when I was here, I really loved this. Uh, it's very special. Or when we have people leaving the company and they say, you know, the next company is good. I love the challenges. I love the work. Everything is cool. But, you know, the culture here is something else. So, and it's, even if I like, comment on it from the position of a CEO and be like, and we have interviews with employees. <laughs> yeah. So, so we do some surveys and it just seems that it is the culture that the people here love and uh, why they don't want to leave and why they stick. I mean, it sounds like Appify is really focused on accessibility from like a company level. And I feel like that rings true into your overall company mission, you know, the idea that you want to make web more programmable, which makes it more accessible. Like, how do you aim to make it more programmable and accessible without unleashing utter chaos to to everyone who wants access to it, and especially everyone who's using the internet and the web as well? It's a it's an interesting way of putting it. I think uh, unleashing chaos is important for for any change and yeah, for progress. So we love unleashing chaos, <laughs> but in a have you ever played Baldur's Gate or Wizards of the Coast things? Yeah, so we're like, we're, we're chaotic good, you know? Yeah. We sometimes make mistakes, but we try to fix them very fast. And But in the grand scheme of things, we, we want to be good and we want to be helpful and we want to be ethical and we want to do good in the world. And our approach to web scraping is really, there's just this vast amount of data, this huge database of information called the internet. And it just makes sense for people to have access to it, right? And to, ha to have programmatic access to it so that they can process the vast amounts of data, not only look at it, but actually get some insights from it and do something good for the world. So by unleashing a little bit of chaos, we try to make the world a better place in the end. So kind of controlled chaos so you can challenge the social norms and the social exactly. stigmas that are normally in place. No, I, exactly. I think that's a great way to do it. And 
you, you don't only see that in tech, you see that in the world overall. And it's, uh, it's good to see a company like Appify taking that forward. And one of the programmable aspects, obviously, that you as a company go for is scaling processes, robotize, like tedious tasks and kind of speed up that workflow with flexibility and automation. In what ways have these processes been applied and have you managed to kind of maintain an ethical standard, really? Because, you know, world of data, world of data collection, ethics is a big thing, especially since this podcast is all about ethical data. It'd be great to know a little bit more about how you maintain ethical standards when you're doing work that you do on Appify. Yeah, I guess uh, there are two prongs to this because Appify is a platform, right? So anybody can come and do whatever they want here. Basically, it's like AWS or Google Cloud. It's they don't monitor what software you are running on the servers. They are your servers. You purchase them and you can do whatever you want with them. But if somebody complains, then you have trouble, right? So this is how we approach our business as well on the platform side. And there's really no other way of doing it. In legal terms, it's called safe harbor. And it's really is the way that any kind of platform can work. It basically says you're not responsible for the actions of your users unless you have known about them previously. So we're relying on Safe Harbor to actually be able to do this business. But then whenever someone reaches out to reaches out and tells us that you know there's something wrong, we try to be extremely helpful and supportive and try to figure this out because we understand that uh, you cannot build a good name for web scraping or data extraction by doing it the shady way, right? We we want to convince everybody and we want to be helpful and understandable. So if somebody comes at us and says, you know, you shouldn't be doing this, we try to calmly uh, explain, okay, those are the boundaries. Uh, we can be doing this. If we find that something is wrong, like, I don't know, somebody is using our platform to abuse a certain website, then we just disable that user. It's very, it doesn't happen often. Luckily, we don't have that many abusers, but it has happened once or twice. And we have done that. And then there is the business that we do on our own, like where we have customers that we scrape websites for them, that we build custom solutions, typically large scale ones for big companies. And there we do really stringent legal analysis and project analysis. We look at how many requests we can actually send to the website so that we don't overload it. But there are many different tools that you can use. Obviously, you have no way of knowing how powerful their servers are, but there are places like SimilarWeb or other resources on the internet that you can use to kind of gouge this. And we're always very careful around personal data, around copyright data. We have a lot of legal opinions around that and uh, but in the end, you know, because I could continue forever about this, but in the end, it really is about having this sense of, I don't know, honesty or this idea of doing good in the end. So, or maybe I think Google's had this as some part of their mission, so they do no harm. Yeah, I think. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So really do no harm, like use your brain and think if what you're doing is a win-win situation or if you're just unloading so many requests on a website that it's just slower for all the other customers, or if you download all pictures from some website and then republish them on a different website, that's not cool, you know, that's piracy. So try to think, am I actually making the world better by doing this? 
And I think our projects are like we have this project for an American nonprofit called Thorn. And for them, we're scraping data or images and videos from adult websites and escort websites. And it's for child trafficking because Thorn have software that's used by law enforcement in the US. And basically, they can use images or videos of kids, typically teenage girls, and upload them into the system. And thanks to the system having a vast database of images and videos that we supplied from those escort uh, and adult sites, they can actually find the kids. And over the four years we've been working with them, they were able to identify 17,000 of them. So, and now it's maybe more because they have not updated their website in the past few months. So it could be like, what, 20K now? It's crazy. And it's just scraping for good. You know, it's the power of web scraping where how you can use public data for good things and we're extremely proud of use cases like that i think that's a great way to put it is is the idea that scraping data is at such a gray area even the, the use of proxies is such a gray area in the world market and not only are you maintaining ethical standards from your kind of kyc side and knowing your customers and stopping anything that is malicious from that side but you're also actively working to put ethical standards into the world as well by your work with, with thorn and yeah i mean now that we're on the topic of some of the clients you're working with. I know that recently you've done some research with Boston College and you received a grant to look into like property tax in Massachusetts area with that type of research. Like how did your work with them go and, and what did you achieve and were there at any point between what you were trying to do and, and federal property laws? Basically overall, how did that look for you as a company to work with such a prestigious college? Yeah, I was, a, I was actually a researcher from the college uh, that reached out to us because as I said, we're a platform, so unless somebody reaches out, we typically don't know what they're doing. And we're always super happy when somebody comes back and it's like, oh, I have this interesting project. Could you help me with this? And we have people who can help. So it's always a good a good idea to reach out. Customer success is extremely important for us, even though it might sound cliche or whatever. But it's like, especially with platforms like ours, where it takes a lot of effort to onboard. It's not like Facebook where you log in and click three times and you're there, right? Yeah. But you have to actually build something and you have to understand what's going on. And so we really try to work with our customers and help them on board. So this was the researcher reaching out to us and asking, hey, you know, I'm trying to do this thing. Could you help me? And we were really happy to help because it was an interesting use case. To be honest, you were asking about federal laws. Luckily, there aren't any federal laws banning web scraping. That's a good thing. Obviously, that would be a bit complicated for us, but this was all public data and uh, there were no intentions on the researcher's side to go any anywhere beyond that. Plus, the US law is very lenient for researchers in terms of using fair use doctrine and other legal, I don't want to say loopholes, but I'm not native English speaker, so I <laughs> have a bit of a trouble finding the correct word. No, look, we'll, we'll go with loopholes. It, it's kind of that gap in the law. <laughs> so research uh, usually has a lot of exemptions for being able to do what maybe companies would not be so easily able to do. So from an ethical or legal standpoint, this was a very easy project. You know, there were no, there were no issues. This podcast is brought to you by Soaks, your ultimate guide in the world of publicly available data. Gather, collect, soaks the data you need just kind of moving on from that i know that i've got a legal background in working on cases but in the case of say 
Haiq versus LinkedIn. Uh, within this case, what we understand is that it seems to be a major victory for LinkedIn themselves. What do you think the implications of this case are for like future web scraping and web scraping tools? Yeah, I'd say it's a landmark case, really, like a super important one. And the important thing is that I think there was a new decision a month ago, maybe three weeks ago, but this only decided certain parts of the case. Because for web scraping, uh, you know, or people who follow web scraping might have noticed that over the past four years, there have been numerous articles and uh, blog posts and news about web scraping finally being legal, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not entirely the case. Web scraping is neither legal or illegal. Uh, it's how you use it and what you scrape, and it's very complex. And there are certain things that you are most likely to be able to scrape, and then there are other things that you would need very specific conditions to be able to scrape them. So if you're scraping for a living or if you're scraping for a really big project, uh, then it's always good to you know, consult a legal representative for legal counsel. But back to Haiku. So originally there was a preliminary injunction issued and it was basically saying that it's okay to scrape publicly available data. Obviously, LinkedIn appealed to this, then it went to the Supreme Court uh, to decide you know, other things. And then back to, I think it was the Ninth Circuit who confirmed the e earlier decision and kind of scoped it that scraping public data is unlikely to breach uh, CFAA, which is Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. So it's not criminally punishable if you scrape public data which is translated by many people to web scraping is now legal. But there are other things that you need to be careful about when you're scraping, um, terms of use, for example. And that's actually what was the subject of discussion in the second or the latest uh, IQ and LinkedIn decision. Because the court basically said, and this was not surprising at all, I would not frame it as a major victory by LinkedIn. Obviously, their PR uh, representatives, they had a very easy job doing that. But the reality is this the case will still go to trial, most likely. So this was only a summary judgment discussing certain things. But what the summary judgment said is that Yes, the terms of use that there were between, like, an, there was an agreement between Haiku and LinkedIn based on terms of use, and that those terms of use are enforceable. That's super important, and also that damages can be claimed if LinkedIn can prove that some damages occurred, which could be very difficult for LinkedIn. But I would say I was a bit more, I was a dreamer in a way. And I was hoping that the court would go a bit further mm -hmm. and they would say, look, this is public data. So yeah. you cannot ban scraping of public data by terms of use. And they would say, this clause in the contract is not enforceable because you simply, it's like free speech or something. They was, I'm, I'm not a US lawyer, you know, so uh, don't quote me on this, but I would expect they would pull a trick like this out of their hat and because this is the 21st century right and say okay you know the data is public you have made it public as linkedin you know you have decided to make it public you wanted it public so now you can't complain that somebody 
downloaded this public data. It wasn't like that. So the dreamer in me was a bit sad, but the reality is there was a contract in place and Haikyuu did not honor it. So I understand why it looked like this, why the decision was made this way. We will still be following the case. But if I should just sum this up, there are two important things. Scraping publicly available data is most likely not punishable by criminal punishment. But if you have any sort of contract with the company that you're scraping, you have to be really careful what's in the contract and how they could possibly enforce it. Plus, I forgot, and that's kind of interesting as well, LinkedIn was complaining that Haikyuu used fake accounts and contractors. And the court decided as well that the use of fake accounts uh, constitutes breach of contract anyway, even though you're just creating them fake accounts for the purpose of accessing data that may or may not be public Mm -hmm. in this specific case, but also made quite an important decision on that. And that every scraping company or everybody who's scraping should be wary if they're using fake accounts and probably should avoid them if if at any point possible. We're trying to avoid them at all costs at this moment. Not that we weren't before, but it's just something that you have to take into account when you're running a company. You know. So it sounds like it's more a starting precedent than a solid landmark that's going to dictate how everything in the scraping space works moving forward, which I, I completely agree is it is that starting point that we're looking at. And with more innovation and more trend changing in the scraping space, I feel like it's a, a good place to build from. Just on that topic, like obviously currently monitoring the scraping space and all the innovation going on, what kind of major trends do you see and, and what type of innovations do you see coming out of not only that case, but out of the, the market in general moving forward over the next, say, six months to a year? Yeah, I don't think there's going to be any major uh, improvements in the area six months or a year. I think AI is going to play a big role, but I think it's still a bit early for it to completely replace programmers. AI is really good when you need huge amounts of data and you don't care that much about the quality of the data. From our experience, AI can take you like 80, 85% there. But for and for some use cases, it's totally fine. And it saves you a lot of money building custom scrapers, right? But for other use cases, it's not fine because you need precise data. And AI is just not there yet. Maybe for some websites it is, but for some websites it aren't, it isn't. Therefore, you can't use just AI, right? Because you still have to have people who at least check the data. And then if it doesn't work, what do you do? You build a custom scraper, maybe? I don't know. Uh, so we're not employing AI too much at this moment, although we're trying we're trying to and playing with it. We see some other of our competitors going a bit more, putting a bit more chips onto this technology. We're waiting it out a bit, like Apple, you know, waits until the technology matures. <laughs> Releases it after uh, everyone else has already released yeah. it, but in their own way. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. But it is the technology of the 21st century. And I think it's going to make major impacts in web scraping as well. What we're trying to do instead is we're trying to focus on developer experience to make it as easy, as convenient, as fast for developers to build scrapers. Because we think that at least for the foreseeable future, uh, humankind will still need developers and developers are a bit picky about what they use and they are very opinionated. And 
So we want to give them the best tools possible and we want them to love them and we want them to share their excitement with other developers. So that's our bet. What better person to do it than the COO who's got a software development background? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, hopefully I'll manage to make it happen. But yeah, uh, AI is something that I see a big future for, but it might take more than six months or a year. What I would actually love from AI uh, is to fix broken scrapers more than actually build, you know, because now what you get is you have those AI extractors. You give them HTML and they parse the data. If it's a product site or, I don't know, an article, it can find the data and kind of give it to you without you having to write the selectors. That's good, but the quality is good for something, not so good for other things. But what I would love to see is that the AI could monitor and something we played with, but it's quite a complex problem. The basically a developer would build a scraper, right? A custom one. And then the AI would, instead of trying to figure it out on some generic model, you would train it based on the data from this scraper that a human built. And then using this data, it could kind of all automatically fix itself because whenever the selectors would change, it would have this historical trend of data to find and to see, and it could compare and maybe find the new selectors with much higher success rate than if you're just using a generic pre-trained model that needs to do it for every single website in the world. And this is something that I don't know if anybody's building, if they are, and they're listening to this podcast, please let me know. I would love to try. <laughs> <laughs> but it feels very exciting because the maintenance of the scrapers is something that takes a lot of your time and energy of developers. And even if it worked only in 50 or 70% cases, it would still be amazing because now you just have to fix all of them, right? So if you only had to fix 50% of them, that would already be a huge upgrade. Exactly. I mean... If anyone is listening to the podcast, it sounds like Andre's uh, extending a partnership out there <laughs> to the wider market <laughs> if anyone wants to work with AI and scrapers. Um, but no, that's great information. It's great to see the insight and direction that you think that scraping space is taking. And it's great to get knowledge from you in, in terms of web scraping overall as well. We've got a couple of other questions, but these aren't so much focused on the, the industry and the market. They're really focused on you, just so we know you a little bit better. Um, and the first question is, if you could take anyone in the world of data out for lunch, who would you take? This would be super hard for me to answer, <laughs> but thankfully this is a professionally prepared podcast. So of I course. got the, the, the questions beforehand, right? And I was really thinking about this and I would take Edward Chen, you know, the judge of the high Q LinkedIn case, because I would really would want to hear his thoughts about the whole scraping of public data and monopolies on data by big platforms and they, how they should not be able to choose who they allow to access public data. Like if they once say that this data is public, then they should not be able to revoke access to some specific person just because they want to, right? And when I first read it and the decision, it really piqued my interest, the language used and how we talked about it. And it would be super interesting to have a chat, you know. Oh, again, if for some random stars aligning moment that he's listening to this podcast, um, <laughs> Andre would like to take you out for lunch. Hopefully that, that might be something that can happen. Um, beyond that, like what piece of software do you use on a daily basis do you think you couldn't live without? 
It could be an application. It could be software that you use for work. What one thing could you not live without? Um, I couldn't live without my Apple devices, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I like iOS and macOS and stuff. But if it, if I need to pick one, uh, it's GitHub. Mm-hmm. It's just so great, you know. It's I don't know how they do it, but. And we copy from them, I must, I must say, you know, like I think most they, of us do in the world of tech. <laughs> they just have great designers and great approach. And they're just really, really good at what they do. I was afraid that the Microsoft acquisition, it's just going to kill GitHub and it's going to be terrible. But for some weird reason, Microsoft actually improved it even more. So I'm super excited about GitHub and it's just an amazing software to work with. It, Sour inspiration, really. It definitely did feel like Microsoft managed to supercharge GitHub in in a way that I never thought they would and really driven them to new heights. And I think that's always going to be a name for tech companies. And I'm glad that you feel the same way in that. The final question we have is, when have you used data to solve a real world problem? It can be the biggest one that you've ever had or the smallest one that might have helped you decide what you wanted for breakfast. (laughs) But (laughs) what what type of data have you used to solve a real world problem? I'm going to look at this question from a bit of a different angle because I'm using data every day to solve real world problems. Right? When, even when I was just an engineer, now as a COO, you just, I have a lot of Excel sheets and, uh, or Google sheets actually. And we have BI analytics and whatever, and we're just looking at data all the time. But I think the one that makes sense talking about in the world of scraping is that once uh, my girlfriend wanted to purchase a dress, I think it was, and uh, it was out of stock, but she really, really wanted it. It was in the, you know, might've been the first months, uh, actually it was in Appify. So I wrote a scraper that basically went <laughs> to the website every 10 minutes, kind of checked if the size is already there. And once it was there, it would send her an email with the link and everything. So she could just uh, purchase it. And it actually worked. Like we were driving, I think, somewhere i don't know we were driving to germany because that's what i know i guess we were maybe driving to austria mm-hmm. for snowboarding in the alps or something like that I, and the email arrives which is just pulled up you know the, the laptop it's like oh my god you know bought it and she was super happy and i was like wow you know such a tiny thing uh web scraping can help you with so that was cool i'm really hoping you got some uh, good brownie points for for doing that for her and the second <laughs> second thing is I definitely need that scraper for my fiance because she'll be in the same mindset. She was always waiting for things to come back into stock on stores. But yeah, that, that's a really useful tool and definitely something you could definitely market to a lot of people, I feel. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about it. You know, I just, it was really customized for this one website. So maybe the AI people can come in and exactly make it work for all shops on the, in the world without having to maintain it, you know. But it's true that we already have a thing in the Appify store, which is like an app store with various scrapers, and it's called the content checker. Okay. And you can basically select a field on the website and it will automatically send you a notification when this changes. So you can monitor like price changes, or maybe you could monitor even if some size is back in stock or stuff like that. So maybe check it out. Maybe it will actually work for you. And this one works on all kinds of websites. You know, you don't have to modify it for a specific website. Brilliant. Well, I'll definitely take that on board. 
Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today on this podcast. I want to thank Condra for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to get to know you, get to know Appify and kind of your views on the data world. And yeah, we'll hopefully have you on sometime in future uh, to pick your brains in, in more detail as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. I, I really loved it. It's an interesting experience to to be on a podcast and I'm looking forward to hearing myself. You know. <laughs> <laughs> We'll make sure uh, we give you the best edit possible. But thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Ethical Data Explained is brought to you by Soaks, a reputable provider of premium residential and mobile proxies, a gateway to data worldwide at scale. Make sure to search for Ethical Data Explained in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. On behalf of the team here at Soaks, thanks for listening.